Life Audio. Welcome to Truth Tribe, where we seek truth through reason about what matters most. I'm your host, Douglas Grotheis, and perhaps we'll even have some fun along the way. Recording from the Philosophy Bunker, somewhere hidden in the recesses of Highlands Ranch, Colorado. Our first episode discussed a little bit about my testimony, what I've done, what I care about, and today I'd like to go into more detail about what Christianity is. So we'll talk maybe 20, 25 minutes, maybe longer, about the nature of the Christian worldview. We can address Christianity in many ways. We could talk about the history of Christianity. We could talk specifically about the teachings of particular books of the Bible and so on. We could talk about how Christianity is believed by various people in America today. But the approach that I would like to take is to understand Christianity as a worldview. Well, good day to you. It's Joel with The King Country dropping in to let you know that our brand new film, Unsung Hero, is in theaters now. It's Luke here. We've teamed up with the creators of Jesus Revolution to bring you this adventure of a lifetime. It's a powerful, true story about a family uniting, growing in their faith, and facing the impossible together. In theaters now, unsunghero.movie for more information. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. This has been very helpful for me throughout my entire Christian life, particularly beginning in about the fall of 1976 when I, I believe that's when I first read James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door, which is a catalog of various worldviews in relationship to the Christian worldview. I took a class that made that a textbook. Then I later in campus ministry taught a class that used that as a textbook taught through that about five times, actually. And then for the first several years in my job at Denver Seminary, I used that book probably the first 10 years. So I think I've taught out of the first five of the six editions of that book. James Sire was a very clear, compelling Christian writer on worldview, apologetics, learning, and so on. He passed away in 2018 same year, my first wife, Rebecca, passed away, and I wrote an article online about that called The Loss of Two of My Best Editors, because as I think I mentioned in my first show, Rebecca edited all my books through the first edition of Christian Apologetics. She encouraged me to write my first book, Unmasking the New Age, which has been my best-selling book, and James Sire helped me get a contract for that book and provided editorial help assistance and encouragement. And in fact, I read through several of his manuscripts for his later books, and he thanked me for that. So the worldview concept has been attacked, I'd say, in the last five to seven years by some Christians such as James K.A. Smith, not to name names, and others. And the idea is 
Christians have really gone wrong in viewing the Christian faith as a worldview. Now, the critique has several aspects. One is, it's too minimal. When you talk about a basic worldview or a set of assumptions about the basic makeup of the world, as Jim Sire put it, you're not really doing enough theology. You're not reciting a creed. You're not doing systematic theology. It's too reductionistic. Well, no one is saying that the idea of a worldview is going to replace reciting the Apostles' Creed, as I do at my Anglican church every week, or it's going to somehow displace the need for systematic theology. It's simply a way of distilling essential ideas about the Christian view of the world in order to do apologetics. Now, you can really use the idea of a Christian worldview in many different areas, not just apologetics, but what does a Christian worldview have to say about art or politics or economics and so on. But the idea of a Christian worldview is extremely helpful for apologetics because you are comparing conceptual systems. You're comparing basically models or hypotheses about existence, the Christian versus the atheist, the Buddhist, the pantheist, the Islamic, and so on, the polytheistic. So we're not reducing Christianity to a worldview. Another criticism might be it's too intellectual. Worldviews are expressed in propositions, and the Christian faith has symbolism, experience, liturgy, ritual. Of course it does. We're not reducing Christianity, the experience of God, the fellowship of believers, to the idea of a worldview. I could go on, but that's enough. The idea of a worldview is very helpful for distilling essential ideas about the Christian understanding of the world or any understanding of the world. Now, you don't want to make your understanding of worldview biased towards one worldview over the others. It's simply a collection of statements about a general perspective on life. This can be organized in a number of different ways. One way of doing it, which I originally got, I believe, from the great philosopher of religion and comparative religion, Harold Netland, who's taught at Trinity for many years, is a threefold assessment. The first question is, what is the ultimate reality? What is most enduring or the central feature of reality? Second, what is the human condition? Who are we? And third, what can be done about it? Is there an answer? Is there salvation, redemption, liberation? If so, what is it? Is it the work of Christ? Is it finding enlightenment through Buddhist teaching? Is it simply enduring life and controlling your inner self, as Stoicism would teach? So that's one way of doing it. But what I'm going to do is talk about the Christian worldview according to the categories that James Sire gives. And what he does is he gives certain propositions, a number of propositions. So what I'd like to do is, first of all, talk about Christianity as truth claiming and then a Christian view of truth and then the specific items of Christian truth that make up a Christian worldview. All right. So first of all, Christianity has a particular concept of truth. This is not unique to Christianity. This was held by Aristotle, Plato, Descartes, really all sober, sane philosophers. And that is that a statement is true if and only if it corresponds to reality. So believing something with all of your heart or being passionate about something does not make it true. Beliefs become true by virtue of facts. 
Beliefs become true by virtue of facts, and I do not control those facts, unless it's something like, I believe that within 10 seconds, I'll raise my right hand. I just did it. Trust me. So I, in a sense, made that come true. But I don't make the fact that the world is round true. I don't make the fact that the world goes around the sun and not vice versa true. These are facts. And I have beliefs regarding facts. These are called truth claims. This is the Christian view of truth. This is what's presupposed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. We are deceiving people. And of all people, we are most to be pitied. So he believes that Christ died, the tomb was later empty, Christ appeared to many that he recounts in 1 Corinthians 15, and that Christ ascended physically, bodily, in history to the right hand of the Father. And of course, the teaching of Scripture is also that he is exercising dominion and authority from that stance, that vantage point, and one day he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. So that's a biblical view. That is the Bible's view of truth. It's not a special religious view of truth. It's simply the teaching that what the Bible says is true, meaning it corresponds or connects with reality. Now, Christianity is truth claiming. Let me explain that. Some people have claimed that religion does not really concern itself very much with truth is in terms of the facts about the universe, about history. Religion is really a matter of rituals and symbols and religious states of mind and all the rest of it. And it doesn't really care about the way the world actually is. This is a form of religious non-realism. People like Wittgenstein seem to hold this. The German philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein Several others have believed this. I go into more depth in refuting this in my book, Christian Apologetic, in both editions. But it's simply false. I just mentioned 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised in real history, our faith is in vain. But Christ has been raised in real history. Therefore, we can do the works of the Lord in the hope that we will be resurrected. And as he says in Romans 5, this hope does not disappoint us. Won't spend much time on that, but that view is out there. Now, I want to talk about the Christian worldview in terms of propositions. But first of all, what exactly is a worldview? It's a set of assumptions about the basic makeup of the world. What do you take reality to be? Does it include a God? Does it exclude a God? Does it have more than one God, polytheism? Does it have two contrasting, competing gods, dualism. Is this God, if there is a God, personal, as in monotheism, impersonal, as in most forms of Hinduism and some forms of Buddhism? So what is the nature of the world, meaning existence, right? Now, worldviews shape the way we view and the way we experience the world, because our deepest beliefs, our command beliefs, or our control beliefs, do a lot of pre-interpreting of the world for us. So we want to get them right. And I don't think that worldviews are glued onto us like our eyes. That is, some people think worldviews are simply a part of who we are, and we can't really compare worldviews according to logic and evidence. I think worldviews are more like glasses. 
you can try on various types of glasses and see which ones help you look at the world the best. I get this distinction from David Clark in a book he wrote many years ago. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So I don't understand worldview to mean something that you hold, you can't help but hold it, and you could never rationally alter your worldview in terms of reason and evidence. I believe worldviews can be tested and that some worldviews are more rationally supported than others and that the Christian worldview is the most rationally supported of all worldviews. All right. Another way of putting a worldview is that of calling it a meta-narrative. Narrative is a story or an account of events, and a meta-narrative is the biggest story, the most compelling, the most comprehensive story of the world. So one way that Christians often explain the Christian worldview, especially in the Reformed tradition, is according to three or four categories. One is always creation. God created the world good, distinct from himself a finite time ago. He created human beings in his image and likeness. Human beings then, the second category is fell. Human beings fell into sin. So we have creation and fall. You see the fall in Genesis 3. The third category is redemption. God continues to reveal himself in nature. He sends prophets. Ultimately, he sends the Lord Jesus Christ. He inspires the scripture for us to know who he is and how to live. So we have creation, fall, redemption, And then you may want to add a fourth category, consummation or eschatology. That is, God will bring all things to a head in his proper timing. So we're talking there of the last judgment, heaven and hell, the new heavens and the new earth. So let's talk about the Christian worldview. First is that God, the ultimate reality, and I'm using some terms from James Sire here. I'll jam on them a little bit. God is infinite and personal, as well as triune, transcendent and imminent, omniscient, sovereign, and good. So God is infinite and personal. Infinite means unlimited in all of his qualities or perfect. 
in all of his qualities, but he's not some abstract principle. He's a personal being who thinks and who acts and who plans and so on. Think of God revealing himself to Moses. This is recorded in Exodus 3, where God says to Moses, my name is I am who I am. So that's a personal self-reflective reference. And the voice, the voice of God, instructs Moses on the liberation of his captive people. Triune, this differentiates Christianity from Judaism and Islam. God is one Lord, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. But that oneness consists in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. These are not three parts of God. These are three persons, co-equal, co-eternal persons within the same Godhead. This is not a contradiction. It is a relationship of oneness and threeness. And while it is unique of all concepts, we are not bereft of ideas of unity and diversity. We have this, the idea of one human race, many individual human beings, one figure, a triangle, but three sides. So it is not a contradiction. In fact, this is the best way to assess and analyze the biblical evidence. So the next is transcendent, meaning God is above and beyond us. He is not limited to space and time, but God is also imminent. He is not a remote God. He is with us. Next, omniscient. He knows everything all the time, not limited in knowledge. He is sovereign. He's not limited in power, and he is good in the source of all goodness. Second, God created the cosmos ex nihilo, with a uniformity of cause and effect in an open system. And James Sire is jamming a bit on some ideas of Francis Schaeffer here. God created the universe ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. He did not externalize himself. He did not use pre-existing materials. But this was an original act of creation with a uniformity of cause and effect. That means it's an orderly and meaningful world. Things don't happen without a cause. It's not haphazard or random. It is an open system as opposed to a closed system. An open system means that God can intervene by sending prophets, by working miracles, by raising Jesus from the dead. And moreover, human beings are not locked into some kind of mechanical deterministic system. That is, we have real agency as moral beings. Next, human beings are created in the image of God and thus possess personality, self-transcendence, intelligence, morality, gregariousness, and creativity. So we alone, of all creatures, possess the divine image. We are personal, we think, we act. We have self-transcendence, meaning we can reflect on the meaning of life and how we should think and act and live. We're not mere machines or animals that act only according to instinct. We have intelligence, the ability to derive truth and engage in arguments. We have a sense of morality, of right and wrong given to us by God. Gregariousness, you might call that sociality. So at first, we read in Genesis 2 that God created the man, and he realized it was not good for man to be alone. So he created the woman for marriage and procreation. We are social beings. Next point, four. Human beings can know both the world around them and God himself because God has built into them the capacity to do so and because he takes an active role in communicating with them. 
It's extremely significant, and it's based on the idea that God is personal and that he created human beings in his personal image. So you find in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is speaking to human beings. Now, God spoke the inanimate and non-human living world into existence, but they didn't answer back. God speaks to humans, and we have the ability to answer back according to our rationality and our relationality. God created us to know him, to know ourselves, and to know the world, and to love God, love our neighbor, and to develop creation. Genesis 1.26 is the creation or the cultural mandate. We were put here to work. Work is not a result of the fall. Work comes before the fall, but of course work and childbearing and everything else becomes more difficult after the fall. God has revealed himself in nature. We see this spoken of in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. We also see it in Romans 1 and 2. God's revealed himself in the nature around us. He's revealed himself in our own nature, especially in our conscience. You see that in Romans 2. And God has revealed himself in a special way through the voice and actions of the prophets of the Old Testament. And this really culminates in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who is God incarnate. This is called special revelation. And the Bible itself is God's living and active word to us that recounts what he has done in time and eternity. So God is a God who speaks, who speaks with meaning, and who speaks with authority. The next point, human beings were created good, but through the fall, the image of God became defaced, though not so ruined as not to be capable of restoration. Through the work of Christ, God redeemed humanity and began the process of restoring people to goodness, though any given person may choose to reject that redemption. So the fact that we are fallen and estranged from God does not render us utterly hopeless or lost in despair because God has continued to pursue human beings since the fall by revealing himself in nature, in conscience, through the prophets, and ultimately through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we will talk more in later episodes about the work of Christ. I added two chapters on that in the second edition of Christian Apologetics. It's such a magnificent doctrine, and not just doctrine, but reality. We have to focus on that more. But we're just giving a short overview, really, of a Christian worldview here. The next point, for each person, death is either the gate to life with God and his people, or the gate to eternal separation, that is hell, from the only thing that will ultimately fulfill human aspirations. So Christianity, put it in comparative context, does not teach reincarnation, that we die and we come back in some other form according to the law of karma. It teaches an ultimate either-or, either redemption through Christ, which eventuates in life with God and all of his redeemed people in a renewed world, or the absence of that and eternal punishment. This is something we find in scripture. Jesus taught it. We see it especially in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the parable of the sheep and the goats. And verse 46 says that those that followed Christ go to eternal life and those that have rejected him and not followed him go into eternal punishment. As far as I can tell, the eternal applies to both outcomes, eternal life and eternal torment. And perhaps we can talk about that doctrine in a later episode. 
So the next proposition, ethics is transcendent and is based on the character of God as good, holy, and loving. So what is morally right and wrong is not based on majority vote. It's not based on legal tradition. It's not based on subjective feeling, but on the character of God as the original goodness. And this is not arbitrary. Rather, God's character determines what is good. He does not arbitrarily command that we should not kill or murder or commit adultery. This fits his character, and it fits the nature of the world that he has made. Next point, history is linear, a meaningful sequence of events leading to the fulfillment of God's purposes in history. So to compare this to the Eastern mindset, in that view, history is cyclical. You do not have an absolute beginning at creation. You do not have, in a sense, a midpoint at the incarnation. Things just happen in cycles, and the purpose of humanity is not to be resurrected in a beautiful final world, which is the biblical view, but is rather to transcend and escape this world of cyclical repetition, this world of karma and reincarnation. That is not, of course, the biblical view. So I'm going to try to summarize this with what could be called a touchstone proposition, trying to summarize the whole worldview in one sentence. You might take that to be a bit foolish, but I think it's at least a good exercise. And I derive this from, it's inspired by Ronald Nash's book, Faith and Reason. Here it is. The universe, originally good, now fallen and awaiting its divine restoration, is created by the triune God who has revealed himself in nature, conscience, scripture, and through the incarnation for the purpose of salvation and judgment that God might be glorified in all things. If you'd like a lot more on the Christian worldview, I've mentioned James Sire's book, The Universe Next Door. I have a chapter on the Christian worldview in Christian apologetics that goes into a lot more detail than that. In fact, in the Christian apologetics book, I've been very influenced by James Sire, but I did not use his specific propositions. I thought it was fun and worthwhile, I hope, to go back and read those propositions and jam on them a little bit because I had taught them for so many years, and I think they're very apt, and they work, and they fit. But remember, we are not cutting Christianity back to a set of abstract propositions. However, as a philosopher, I have absolutely nothing against abstract propositions. This is how we communicate abstract truths. We have to use concepts like omniscient, that's very abstract, a being who knows all things, or omnipresent, a being who's everywhere at the same time. So I have no bone to pick with abstract propositions. The issue is whether these propositions are true or false, and how pertinent they are to understanding reality. So what we're trying to do with a Christian worldview is present to the world a set of truth claims about these areas of existence. This is not unique to Christianity. Every religion has a worldview, and every larger-scale philosophy of life has a worldview. So it's not something that Christians cooked up to try to favor their religion over another religion or some form of irreligion. I don't see anything like that going on. I take this to be very helpful. And if we are bearing witness to the truth of Christianity with unbelievers or helping other believers become more knowledgeable and deeper in their faith, 
it's really important that we internalize this Christian worldview. And not simply these propositions, but the scriptures that back these up. And I haven't given you a whole lot of scripture, some, but I could go on and on about the texts, the stories, the themes in scripture that back up these propositions that I've given you in this short session. So I will end for now. What we've tried to do is look at the Christian worldview in terms of a set of ideas. And next time we'll talk about the basic defense of Christianity as objectively true, compellingly rational and pertinent to the whole of life. So my call to action for you is to continue to read scripture and ask, what is the worldview of scripture? How did Jesus view God and history and morality? I wrote a little book on that some years ago called On Jesus. I challenge you to read books about worldview. The James Sire book is excellent. I think my chapter on worldview can be helpful. Ronald Nash wrote a little book I think called Worldviews in Conflict, which is excellent. Nancy Piercy wrote a book called Total Truth that is really all about worldviews. And also, if you'd like more information about what I can offer you, please go to douglasgrotheis.com. I'm also on Facebook, and you can hear from me on Twitter at Doug Grotheis, at Doug Grotheis. So thank you for coming into the Philosopher's Cave and being on Truth Tribe. Bye. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. There's no better way to start your day than spending time in God's Word and in prayer. Don't know where to start? We have a free daily prayer podcast created to help you do just that. The Your Daily Prayer podcast delivers a thoughtful, devotional, and timely prayer to you seven days a week. Gain inspiration, faith, and encouragement with daily messages in 10 minutes or less. To start listening now, search Your Daily Prayer on your favorite podcast app or visit lifeaudio.com.